Now, find in your Bibles the 16th Psalm, and I'll read to you just a portion of it. That's what we're, this is our great chapter for the, these few Sundays. I'll read to you, uh, I read the whole Psalm last week. I'm not going to read the whole one this, but I'm going to read half of it. I'm going to start in verse 1. Um, we concentrated on verses 1 and 2 last week. We'll concentrate on verses 5 and 6 this morning. It reads like this. A miktam of David, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, this word, this endures forever. Guys, the, the speaker of the psalm, the man who wrote it, is a very contented man, which is... Um, in our day, quite unusual, is it not? It's, um, <clears throat> it's far more common to hear people complaining. It's far more common for people to um, talk about how deprived they are and, and mistreated they've been. And all because I think Satan would have you to doubt the goodness of God in your life. Uh, that's what he tempted Eve with, you may recall. Um, has God deprived you of something? Um, there are those who suggest that the, the first sin ever committed was a sin of discontent. Now, I don't know about that, but I, I do know this. Paul says to the Philippian church in chapter 2, verse 14, do all things without grumbling or complaining. <laughs> do all things without grumbling or complaining. Somebody said that if that were the only command in the Bible, we would all be guilty. We would all perish simply having violated that one command, do all things without grumbling or complaining. So when you hear a man talk like this, boy, he deserves to be heard. He deserves our attention. Maybe, maybe who knows? I mean, maybe he's got some kind of secret insight into life that would help us arrive at the same place where he is. Let's, let's, let's see. First of all, who is this guy? Is it Christ or is it David? I said to you last week that it, when you're reading the Psalms, it's often very difficult to figure out which one is being referred to. Um, Christ could certainly speak like this, even though he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and despised and rejected of men. He was sent to be the payment for sin, our sin. And yet he could certainly speak like that and in one sense he's the only one who could speak like this i guess but we're not going to look at it like that we're going to look at it as if this is david giving voice to things that are in his soul and the reason that i do that ladies and gentlemen is because of what he says in verse six the lines have fallen for me i'm suggesting that he's describing himself so with that in mind Take a look with me. He first says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. 
the lines. What on earth is that? Well, it is very clearly an allusion to Joshua 18 and 19. You know what takes place in Joshua 18 and 19. Um, You remember when Israel comes up and they finally get into the promised land and they defeat all the inhabitants of the promised land. Joshua and the then high priest Eliezer get together and cast lots for the division of the promised land among the 12 tribes. Um, So each of the tribes, except Levi, Levi um, did not get a portion in the promised land, but the other 11 did. They all got a portion of the promised land, and it came complete with boundaries or lines. That word lines is a reference to things that God has given to David. And he says, those lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. The psalmist is looking at what God has allotted to him. And he says, boy, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places why of course he does dr young he is the king you know if i were the king and everybody in my kingdom loved me i you know i'd probably be content too well not so fast it is david and do you remember that david spent seven years of his life being chased by saul he lived in caves do you remember that um um He was despised by his own brothers when he went forward to take them some supplies with Goliath threatening. He was um, conspired against by his own son, Absalom, run out of town. Son wanted to kill him. He had one daughter who was assaulted. He had another son that was murdered. And in the face of all that, the psalm says the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places um secondly uh, did you notice did you take note of the language look at it in verse six the lines have fallen for me that's interesting language ladies and gentlemen um do you do you do you see god in that language oh i do um he's he sees that um everything that is that he has in his life is is has fallen to him from the hands of a sovereign god who has fixed the lines of his life <clears throat> and provides for him bringing him to the place where he recognizes that all that he possesses and enjoys is something that God has allotted to him. And because he does, he says these lines have fallen. I didn't earn them. I didn't work real hard for them. They've fallen to me in pleasant places. And ladies and gentlemen, I say to you, that is such a huge issue for so many of us. 
Because we step back and take a look at our lives and we say, hmm, this thing didn't work out the way that I wanted it to work out. I mean, I had certain dreams that, that, that I had and, and, and this, this didn't fulfill them. And instead of talking like this, they're disillusioned. They're angry. They're um, even bitter. You know, in the course of 48 years of ministry, I've run across several, particularly men, that I have a label for. I say they have the angry man syndrome. You ever met one? Nothing makes them happy. I live next door to one. You know, um, Susie and I bought this house down in Midtown, and there's this fellow that uh, he doesn't seem to be, have anything to be happy about. So one day I was out, you know, working in my yard, and I was dressed like a tramp. But, you know, I was filthy and sweaty, and, and um, I have this blower machine, uh, you know, this thing that you put on the back, and it'll, you know, it'll lock your house down if you... Um, but anyway, I was blowing around there and there's a fence between our two houses and I was blowing around there and, um, um, when I turned the machine off, I heard this man on the other side of the fence and he said, you get over here and fix this. I thought, Oh no, I've broken his windshield. I've, I've destroyed his kitten. Um, you know, I don't, what have I done? So I walked around the fence to find that there were eight, 10, maybe 20 pieces of misplaced mulch in his driveway. And he said, look at that. That's terrible. And I said, um, well, I'll certainly, I'll certainly get right on this. But obviously, you do not understand the proper definition of the word terrible. I, I think that the man, because I look like a, you know, a hobo, um, I think the man thought I was part of the hired help. And when I said something at least intelligent, although catty, um, in, in reply, then he realized, oh my, he's my neighbor. There's nothing that can make him happy. Nothing, nothing would he ever say, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. No, no. I was thinking I would be this or that by now. Folks, um, what, you're, what, what the psalmist is describing is a view that he has... An, an idea of who God is. That God has allotted to him all that he experiences. And all of these things have come from a God who is good. And later on, the same psalmist will write in Psalm 119, he is good and he does good. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that is the fundamental assumption underneath a life of contentment. 
and understanding that this God that we pray to is good and he does good. Let me tell you a little story about that, that text. It's in Psalm 119, verse 68. Um, <clears throat> many of you have heard of the, um, heard the name George Mueller. George Mueller lived in the 19th century in the same era with Charles Spurgeon. And Mueller brought into being a, a series of orphanages in the city of London. Um, and one of the uniquenesses about his ministry is that he refused to appeal directly for money. He would not ask people to give money to the orphanages. He thought that he, if he was going to appeal, he was going to appeal to God and he was going to trust God to meet his needs, and God did. And stories are written about George Mueller and how God provided for him just because he prayed. Well, on, in, in February of 1870, his wife, his wife of long standing, contracted rheumatic fever and died. She, um, she went through six days of agony and then was, she succumbed to rheumatic fever and died. On that day, February the 6th of 1870, Mueller wrote this in his, in his diary. 39 years and four months ago, the Lord gave me the most valuable, lovely, and holy wife. Her value to me and the blessing God made her to me is beyond description. This blessing was continued to me till this day when this afternoon, about four o'clock, the Lord took her to himself. Five days later, the funeral was held and Mueller insisted on being the speaker preacher at his wife's funeral. He had a text. His text was Psalm 119 verse 68. You are good and you do good. Could I tell you the three points of his sermon? Here's point number one. The Lord was good and did good in giving her to me. Here's the second point. The Lord was good and did good in giving her to me for so long. You know, I think I could preach that. It's this third point. Here's his third point. The Lord was good and did good in taking her from me. Could you say that? Can you, can you say anything that resembles that about the difficulty that you may experience right now? Well, ladies and gentlemen, tell me, is God good or not? Folks, mere duty or law or legalism will not take you there. David doesn't say, boy, I've had a good life. He doesn't say, man, I've been lucky over the years. He doesn't say, I've worked hard and it's paid off. No, no, ladies and gentlemen, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places because I know the God who has distributed 
allocated. I know the God to whom I belong. And he has proved his faithfulness over and over and over again to me. And that God is good. And he does good. Folks, I, I make a big deal on Wednesday nights of the word said. It's a Hebrew word which means it's translated steadfast love. It's covenantal love. It's that love that's faithful, that will not let go of us. But I want you to do a little work this afternoon in your own quiet times. Get yourself a concordance and, and look up steadfast love. And here's something that you will find. When that steadfast love is mentioned, it is almost invariably mentioned alongside something else. His faithfulness. His steadfast love and faithfulness. Look at Proverbs 3. The father says to his son, son, don't forget this. Don't forget his steadfast love. Oh yeah, that's how you began in this whole new life of yours. But this God who brought you to himself is also a God of utter and complete everlasting faithfulness. And that God who has been faithful to me is the God to, from whom the lines have fallen out in pleasant places to me. Never did he ever break any of his promises to me, even though I've had my own share of pain. You know, folks, I've got a couple of three heroes in my life. Maybe I got more. Right at the top of the list is a man by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones, the finest expositor of Scripture that ever lived in my mind. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says that the number one sin among Christians is that we're not happy. Oh, it's not adultery. It's not a robbery. The number one sin among us is that we're not happy. Why are we not happy, ladies and gentlemen? Because somewhere we have begun to question whether that God is indeed good. And what you're seeing in this text, ladies and gentlemen, is a man who is fed on the goodness of God and then gives voice to his meal by saying that God because of that God the lines for me have fallen in pleasant places now as for the advice or the explanation or the application of these verses, these two little verses. I want you to know, notice he gives us the reason for his contentment. 
It's in verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The secret to his contentment is that the Lord is his chosen portion. And because the Lord is his chosen portion, I've come to a conclusion that the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. I want to read you four or five sentences from an old Puritan whose name was Thomas Brooks. Thomas Brooks says, and I'm quoting, Oh, Christians, God is an all-sufficient portion. His power is all-sufficient to protect you. His wisdom is all-sufficient to direct you. His mercy is all-sufficient to pardon you. His goodness is all-sufficient to provide for you. His word is all-sufficient to support you and strengthen you. And his grace is all-sufficient to adorn you and enrich you. And his spirit is all-sufficient to lead you and comfort you. And what can you desire more? I don't know, but there must be something because we aren't happy. Brooks called God his omnia super omnia. I was struck by that. Translated, it means he is the everything above everything else. Maybe we can't say that. Maybe we can. But I can tell you this much, ladies and gentlemen, our God loves to be trusted. The whole Christian life started out that way. We trusted in Christ to save us and turned away from self. And from there, life became a series of circumstances forcing me to ask, is God good? If you conclude, yes, he is, then you might say some things that are similar to this. You might find yourself more thankful. You might even preach a sermon like George Mueller's. But if you answer no, You become angry and disillusioned and bitter. And contentment is out of the question for you. Folks, here's the truth. God's people have good things now and better things to come. Do you believe that?
It all starts when you come to terms with the Christ that this good God sent. You must start with Him. The non-Christian refuses to do that. He won't come to Him. He hasn't come to Him. He doesn't come to Him. Because his trust is found in himself. But for us Christians, the lines have fallen for us in pleasant places. And if you can't think of any place, let me give you one. Our sin is forgiven. You know, guys, maybe that's what David had in mind. Maybe that's what he's saying here. If you know anything about David's later life, what he did with Bathsheba and her husband, then perhaps the one place where David found contentment was in the knowledge of forgiven sin. Dear one, is your sin forgiven? If not, I can understand why contentment is so impossible for you. But for us who know this Savior that was sent by the good God, The lines for us have fallen in pleasant places. Our Father, would you use this statement by the psalmist to awaken and quicken all kinds of interesting soulish questions among us. Might we be be able to take this passage down into that place where only you and I go and find out why it is that a contentment is so elusive, why it is that contentment is so impossible for me. Oh God, show us what the psalmist realized, that you are good and you do good. And you only do good. Also, Lord, for those who have come this morning that you brought here who have not yet met our Savior, there's nothing good that awaits them. Would you cause them to see what their need is this morning is a relationship with you through Jesus Christ. Open their eyes to see that. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.